Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. It's called The Basics of Buddhism again. And it just gives me an opportunity to take some core teachings of the Buddha, ones I try and choose that most people are familiar with or has terms that people are familiar with, and then just to unpack it a little bit. So that's what we're going to do tonight. And the topic we're going to unpack is a common term that people hear is the middle path or the middle way. Um, how many people here have heard this term, the middle way or the middle path? Yeah. So I think probably if you ask most people what the Buddha taught, um, they would say, oh, something about the middle way or the middle path. Uh, so that's what we're going to, to look into tonight. Um, but first, I just wanted to begin with a little, uh, what I think is actually a poem. Um, but a teaching from the Buddha not related or maybe completely related to what we're going to uh, explore in a second. So here are the Buddha's words. Let not a person... Oh, this also... Maybe I should have read this before we sat. (laughs) Let not a person revive the past. Is anybody doing that when they were sitting? Let not a person revive the past or, on the future, build her hopes. So nobody was doing that, right? (laughs) Let not a person revive the past or, on the future, build her hopes, for the past has been left behind. And the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let her see each presently arisen state. Let her know that and be sure of it, invincibly and unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow you might die. Who knows? No bargain with death can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells here ardently, relentlessly, By day and night, it is he, the peaceful sage, has said, who has had a single excellent night. Isn't that so beautiful? So, somebody who's not caught up in reviving their past. Is anybody into this sometimes? It's like just reviewing things that have happened to them in their life. 
Um, especially if there are things that have happened in your life that have been unresolved um, or are, are not resolvable, um, the tendency is just to go back over and over and over. And then don't build up hope in what things are going to be like in the future. So you're not saying don't think about the future. You're saying no grasping. No grasping. Um, and then somebody who, I love this unshakable and invincible, which I would translate as courage. Somebody who has the courage to actually see what's going on in present experience has had a single excellent night. So, that could be tonight. Right? So maybe some of you have an idea, like to have a single excellent night, you have to be wearing high heels and be at the disco. <laughs> For me, it would be like lying down, <laughs> resting. <laughs> um, whatever your idea of a single excellent night, you know, the rave at 4 a.m., whatever your thing is. Um, is that really what's involved in a single excellent night? Does your contentment depend on externals? It's kind of what the Buddha is asking here. Or can you invincibly and unshakably, um, I think he actually uses the word, did he use the word ardently? He does usually. Um, see each presently arisen state and know it and be sure of it. So it's not like you're just watching for some new state to arise, but you know it and you're sure of it. So that is how the Buddha speaks about being awake. That being awake is not, you know, finding some meditative state that you enter into that you're going to be in for the next few decades. But actually to be tuned in, to know and be sure of every presently arising state, and to know that it changes. So human beings are um, strained. Our hearts have strain in them. Because in the past, things have happened to us that we replay over and over, sometimes in the hopes that we'll find some kernel that will just make everything okay. And human beings have strain in their heart because we're longing for something in the future that's going to satisfy us. Um, when you sit and you sit still, your practice will show you all of your patterns of clinging. Sometimes when you sit, it's really pleasant and really peaceful. And you get still, and then um, contentment arises. And then usually, the other side of that will arise right after. So one of the things we've been exploring this month at Center of Gravity is how this path is not a path towards happiness. And nowadays, if you read most Buddhist literature on like pop culture, it all is about like getting happy. Yeah. But really what the Buddha is going after 
is to recognize the strain in our heart and to respond by practicing in a way that leads us to freedom. And freedom is not dependent on being happy or being sad. If it was, when you were in pain, when you're in pain, then you can't be free. So I think as we explore tonight, let's just put aside some of our expectations that, you know, we're here to get happy or we're here to get enlightened or or maybe some of you are here just to stay depressed. Some people are really attached to their depression and it's like if they feel a little happy, it's like, kind of like they don't know what to do can't actually let themselves be happy. You're probably not one of them. But they come around, usually they're wearing black. <laughs> Turtlenecks, usually. Okay. So before we go forward, that's a little prologue. Uh, why are you here tonight? Why did you sign up? It's Friday night. There are so many options. Yeah. What, are you, what are you doing here? So maybe some of you can just respond. What, what, why did you come? What, what are you expecting? What brought you here tonight? Don't be shy. Yeah. Well, I know by visiting Buddhism is talks, talks about things are never going to be everything's going to change. Mm. And the last time I saw you was almost a year ago. Uh-huh, yeah. And I wanted to sort of like renew my vows back here at Center of Gravity. Yeah. I already yeah. had this, this day booked off. I even took the day off from work and I told everyone uh-huh. about coming to yeah. work or coming here. But mm. it's interesting to see how just even a year things can just change and yeah. it's always constantly changing. Yeah, yeah. However what we study and Mm -hmm. especially with the basics of Buddhism Mm -hmm. it's always going to stand still Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's why I was here just interesting thank you somebody else why why are you here yeah oh maybe you can say your names too oh I'm Leon and I'm Heather um and new again in Toronto so yeah I was I'm curious. Mm-hmm. I wanted to come to the center and also oh. to. Um, I've sat with different sanghas and heard different meditation talks, mm-hmm. but I hadn't heard it phrased like you know the basics of Buddhism. Mm. So I was very uh, yeah. I'm just I'm curious what the basics. Mm-hmm. Are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd like to learn more. Me too. Yeah. Thank you. Someone else. Why are you here? Yeah. Thanks, Lyndon. Um, I've never been here before, but I've been listening to the podcast for a long time. Uh-huh. I'm finding listening to the learning about Buddhism just gives me a real <clears throat> of connection, just sort of no matter what's going on, it just some some sort of truth just makes me feel connected. And it's just sort of a, a feeling of resonance and connection. And I find sometimes hearing it from different people, you kind of get a new new color to it. Mm-hmm. Just kind of get some of that. Great. Someone else, yeah. Uh, and Jillian. And Hi, uh, we came from London, <coughs> and uh, we just, we don't really know anything about Buddhism, so we just are here to learn and 
Okay. A night out in Toronto. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, this. Right. Okay. I, I should just stop coming in person. <laughs> uh, one, one more, one more person. Yes. Several centuries after the Buddha died, um, his teachings were written down. Um, They were written down in a language called Pali. Um, So the canon of the early teachings of the Buddha are called the Pali canon. So when you want to go back to sort of what the Buddha said, and I say that with quotations, because we don't know exactly what the Buddha said, but when you want to go back to what the Buddha said, the earliest source material we have is called the Pali Canon. And in the middle-length discourses of the Pali Canon, they're organized in the strangest way. Um, we have this teaching that the Buddha gives called the Middle Way. And so here are some excerpts from the Buddha's teaching of the Middle Way. And it begins like this. And you can follow along in your handout. If you don't have a handout, please share with someone. Does everybody have something? Okay. This humankind, that's you, is attached to self-production or holds to other production. Those who have not understood this have not seen it as a dart. But one who sees, having drawn out the dart, does not think, I am the agent, nor does he think, another is the agent. So, let's just stop there. Human kind, so I, when I read that, I always like to say, me, I'm attached to self-production. I'm, I'm attached to myself. And I'm also attached to other production. So do you know what he means by this? So we are attached to perceiving ourselves as a self. And... For someone who does some meditation practice, as you start to move towards stillness, what you actually start to see is that almost all of your thoughts are about yourself. It's kind of depressing. Well, it actually, for a narcissist, it's amazing. (laughs) But actually, it's quite an astounding thing to see that all of your... And this includes like daydreams, 
And even if you notice your dream life, because you're always dreaming, you're always the main character. And whatever's going on pivots around this central figure of me. Mm-hmm. And so he's saying that human beings are attached to self-production. So they're invested in creating a narrative about themselves. And so you could say, what is a human self? It seems to be a human self is the ego's attempt just to grasp itself somehow. There's some part of us that is just trying to grasp itself all the time. And it does this with a story or with an image or with a narrative. And the narrative always has to be borrowed from the past. Because to even think of the future, you need to take some kind of pattern from the past and put it together to create yourself. So then, if you're creating yourself, you're not actually in present experience. There's just the self-making machine happening, which creates as a byproduct anxiety. Because... There isn't actually a full presence with what's going on. What there really is, is the creation of a story about what's going on, which splits you. (laughs) So on the one hand, there's present experience that has nothing to do with you. And then there's this energy of me there, trying to find a way to assert itself. It's kind of a fascinating thing to explore. And once in a while in your life, you have an experience where that's suspended or it's interrupted. So sometimes they're positive experiences. Like, um, I remember one time uh, swimming in a lake up north, and then I, I swam, and then my head came up for air, and right in front of me was a loon. And it was just two of us, eye to eye. And it was... <laughs> And for a moment, there's just this astounding experience happening where just everything falls away. And there's just this meeting, this perfect meeting, like two arrows meeting in midair. And then the mind comes in and goes, whoa. And then you're telling yourself about the experience, right? Or sometimes we have a traumatic experience where this happens. You're, you're driving fast down the highway and your car gets hit. And you're spinning out of control and time slows down and what's going on becomes very vivid, suddenly vivid. And it's not happening to you. It's just happening. Or you, experience, you hear this, you know, when someone gets shot, you know, or they have some kind of traumatic experience where that part of us that's always telling a story stops. And I won't get too far into it now, but it's one of the interesting things about working with people with trauma is that sometimes actually the moment they were traumatized can actually be a spiritual experience. Because it's a moment where they've forgotten about themselves. And actually, for some people, it can be really confusing even to think about that. But it's actually a really interesting thing to to explore. But that's beyond our evening tonight.
Um, so humankind is attached to self-production. Um, in Pali, which is the language this is written in, there's a very interesting term, which is nivarna, not to be confused with nirvana. Nivarna, which means to cover over. To cover over. And it's actually the word that gets translated as hindrance. And it means to cover over. And I've always liked this idea of covering over as an obstacle, as a hindrance. Because what, in a way, what this selfing system does is it's taking the data of what's happening in our experience, or just in experience, and it's covering it over with me. And in a way, what practice is doing is it's uncovering. It's just like pulling a tarp off something. So then the Buddha says, the other thing that we do as humans is we hold to other production. It's an interesting way of saying it. So it's saying either you're building up a sense of self or you're building up another over there. So we all know this, right? When you are obsessing about somebody, has anyone done this before? You're angry with someone. Or one thing I like thinking about is revenge. You know, you have like revenge schemes. Nobody has this? Anyways. Um, you might know somebody who does this. <laughs> Whenever I'm upset, it's the first place I go to is it? Like, if someone does something mean to me, I was like, how am I going to get them back? <laughs> and um, so this is other production. Uh, but we do this also in really small ways. Um, if you have a partner or a good friend or someone you've been close with for a while, notice that you think you're fresh with them. But actually... If you start watching your mind, you're constantly uh, hemming them in to this story you have about them. And to build a story about them, a few layers down, the intention, even though this is unconscious, is for you. Because you need a story about them. And this is like really unfair to other people because then as you're relating to them you're only getting like a small percentage of them because you're constantly superimposing on your relationship a story about them and I think we do this a lot with enemies that you have someone you don't get along with and you expect three years later when you bump into them on the sidewalk that they're exactly the same does anybody get like this? You see someone you haven't seen in a while who you had a falling out with, you bump into them, and like right away in your brain, they're the same as they were three years ago. And then included in that is like, well, I've changed. <laughs> right? There's this assumption, well, I've changed, but... Yeah, there's... Um, now, I think... The Buddha is doing something else here, which is that he is also making a critique of religion. 
So he's always working on these two levels. He's sort of going after how you do this individually, but he's also going after the spirit of the culture at the time. And the culture at this time is attached to an inner self or an inner soul. Mm-hmm. Or attached to other production. Okay? Either that I'm responsible, so it's like free will, for everything that happens to me and whether I get a better rebirth or not. Or it's God. And the Buddha is saying, well, isn't that psychologically the same? That either we have this story going on that deep in me is, a, is this deep, deep self. Or in English, we like to capital S self. You know? In Sanskrit, you can't capitalize letters, actually. Or in Pali. So it's just this idea of like, we're always trying to find a way to have something that's real that we can hold on to. And so if you don't feel that way as a person, you project it deep inside you. So deep in my heart is my soul. Okay. Or far outside me is other production, is a god or the eternal or whatever. And the Buddha is saying, well, isn't that also creating separation? Right. There's a god out there or there's a god in here. The Buddha is kind of poking at this a little bit. Then he says, those who have not understood this have not seen that whole mechanism of storytelling as a dart. He uses this term a lot, a dart. Sometimes he says a dart smeared with poison. But one who sees, and seeing here is not literal. It's not sort of seeing with your eyes, but one who's open with their whole heart to wholeheartedly be open. Um, is fresh. They don't think I'm the agent and they don't think another is the agent. In a way, what he's saying is how do I see what really is How do I feel what really is without having a separate observer watching the experience or commenting on the experience? Why do we live in a way where we're separated from ourselves and there's constantly a commentary? I'm terrible. I'm inadequate. Or the flip side. I'm amazing. Mostly in our culture, I think what we see is um, I'm missing something. I'm inadequate. I'm not good enough. Or the other production, they're better than me. Or they're not good enough. So before we keep going, does anybody have any comments or questions? As you can see, there's a lot of layers to these simple phrases. Uh, But I chose this because it's not too technical. You don't have to know any technical language. Yeah. I was wondering, who is the self that created the story? Who is the self that's creating the story? Yeah. What is the self? Yeah. 
It's a good question. So maybe just hold that. Will it stop? Who's asking that question? Who's that? Okay. That's why we're here. Any other comments or questions? Don't be shy. Really? Yes. Come on. Um, you're talking about like separation between like the observer and what yeah. we observe in ourselves. Yeah. So basically, the teachings is to kind of like bring this together. Yeah. Um, you know, we talk a lot also about the ego, and we try to. I think a lot of times we try to. Well, for myself, when I see that it's my ego acting. Mm-hmm. Then I realize, or I try to take consciousness that oh, that's my ego. So doesn't that create some sort of separation between the, uh-huh. yourself and the yep. ego? And yeah. Would, would it be wise to integrate the ego with ourselves and try to love the ego and bring it? Mm-hmm. Because we're never going to be, you know, get rid of it. It's yeah. something that's always going to be present. Yeah. I always think of the ego as like Hydra's head. So you know the myth of Hydra. So when you cut off one of Hydra's heads, Hydra grows like seven more. And the ego is like this too, right? You try and cut off your ego, and then you get like a spiritual ego. Oh, I've, I have no ego. <laughs> so the, the, the process of practice is not so much getting rid of the ego, but through actually becoming present experience the ego becomes transparent and more elastic and is just seen through but it doesn't necessarily stop and actually you don't want the ego to stop because the ego serves really important functions it helps mediate between the conscious and the unconscious the individual and the social It helps differentiate you and a fire truck coming at you when you're crossing the road. So if you didn't have an ego, you'd just be one with the fire truck. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody else? Why is the ego um, relentlessly trying to grasp it's the self? Uh-huh. Um, or is that simply its, its function? So that's a fascinating question. I mean, in a way, I've had that question more as like a Darwinian question, which is, if there's evolution, and we're a self-organizing system that seems to become more efficient, and this self-reference problem we have creates suffering, then why isn't it kind of um, being worked out of the organism in fact seems to be going the other way and my only answer is from my own practice that that selfing making a me is so rooted in fear this fear of Uh, a deep 
intimate uh, drenching in what's actually going on. And it seems like the self will do anything um, to hijack that process. So that's what I see in my experience. In terms of evolution, I don't understand. But I think all of us, if we start looking at what happens in the mind, especially those of you that really have a committed meditation practice, you start to see that the self kind of like goes and hides out and kind of works from a corner you can't see. This is one of the reasons why I always say, at some point in practice, it becomes really important to stop reading books and to study with a teacher in an intimate way and to study the teachings deeply so that the life becomes a life where practice is showing you like a mirror the nature of your life. And I think the ego doesn't like hearing that because it wants to keep reading about it so I can just like know about my life or I can hold on to my philosophy about my life. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting to watch. Should we keep going and hear what the Buddha has to say? Those questions were very related. I think. What has been attained and what is still to be attained? Both these are littered with dust for a frail person. Those who hold training as the essence or who hold virtue and vow, pure livelihood, celibacy, and service as the essence, this is one extreme. It's very interesting, this, this section here. And those with such theories and such views as there is no fault in sensual desire, this is the second extreme. Both these extremes cause the cemeteries to grow. And the cemeteries cause wrong views to grow. By not penetrating these two extremes, some hold back and some go too far. But for those who penetrated them and were no more found among them, and who did not conceive on this account, there's no round for the manifestation of them. So, what has been attained and what is still to be attained? Both these are little littered with dust for a frail person. So, somebody who is um, constantly obsessed with what they need to attain or somebody who's constantly reviewing what they have attained or not attained um, they become frail they become frail which to me is like not resilient Mm -hmm. I think we've probably all seen this maybe you have an elderly person in your family who is really stuck in the past. Does anybody know somebody like this? You know, just always replaying the old situations from the past. And you see in their physiology and in their face a kind of a frailty. Not alive. 
with the spirit of the age, with the spirit of the day, or with the encounter with you. I don't know if you know people who are very long-winded. Does anybody know somebody like this? Mm-hmm. We can all be like this. But somebody who's really long-winded where there's a kind of distancing where when you're with them, they tend to be just talking about what they've done or what they're going to do or theorizing in such a way. The bars are filled with these people. <laughs> That's why I never go there. It's not that I don't like drinking. It's that I can't go to the bar. It's all these people. Um, <laughs> there was no one there. I would just go sit by myself. Um, and in long-windedness, there's a kind of this energy of like not being able to see what's right in front of you. And how sad when there's somebody that you're with who can't meet you or you can't meet them because of um, focusing on what they've attained or on what is still to be attained. And you see this, and I think it's sad as people age and they get to a place where they can't find in themselves their home. So all they can see is what they have to attain still. Now there's nothing wrong with being creative and having ideas. Oh, I really want to, you know, uh, learn to dance or, you know, I really, you know, there's all these things I want to try. But when there's a kind of restlessness where someone's just not home. When you're with them, you really can feel it. And then maybe we can see it in ourselves, too. This is what the Buddha's getting at. And I find it really kind of beautiful, this nuance of how this creates frailty. Frailty. Then he says, uh, then there are people who hold as the essence of practice training which I hear kind of as like discipline. So I don't know if anyone's tried this, but I am going to start a meditation practice every day. I'm going to sit every day for 30 minutes because Michael does. He told me I should. Now I'm going to be like... And it's like this kind of military... And then, like they practice for a month, you never see them again. There's not this kind of like uh, appreciation appreciation for hey, I have this mind this life my heart is not satisfied and I want to learn how to appreciate what I've got so I'm going to sit but or there's this attainment like I need to be disciplined that's the essence of practice if I'm disciplined I'll get it so I've never connected much to discipline I mean, I look back at my life and say, whoa, I have a lot of discipline because I've done this and this and this. People often say, you must have so much discipline. And I don't think of myself. I don't even think of discipline. It's just, what else am I going to do? <laughs> you know. I mean, maybe you hit a phase in your life where you say, like, I can't keep... I'm not doing this. I know what I won't do. <laughs> you know? 
So the essence is not just training. It's not the essence. He says, and then there's some people who hold virtue and vow as the essence. So the essence is ethics. So I'm always going to be nonviolent. Every situation, I'm nonviolent. You know, and then like you can't get along with anybody. You know, it's like sometimes people when they start doing yoga practice, they get like really into being vegetarian, and then they become vegan, and then they get like a raw diet. You know, and then like they can't travel anywhere. Like your family invites you for dinner, you have to bring your own food. You can't like go to any northern climate. <laughs> so you can't eat anything. And then like slowly your life gets like really, really, really small. Or maybe it's around who you uh, your companions. Right? So I'm only gonna hang out with people who practice. So then like you get rid of all your old friends. Then it's like, and of those people, I'm only gonna practice the people who practice in my lineage. Because those other lineages, like that's not really deep. Like what we're doing is like traditional and then like next thing you know it's like you're just at home paranoid (laughs) shivering on your yoga mat and like totally inflated it's like I'm God locked up but you're a yogi you know so the Buddha is just saying like if you say that the essence of practice is one thing You've missed it. It's not training. It's not... Yes, you have to train. It takes discipline, yes. Yes, ethics are really important. But ethics won't tell you how to live. Mm -hmm. We need to look at the food we eat from a political perspective, from a social perspective, and so on. But when you hold that that ideology is going to make you free... You've gone too far, the Buddha is saying. You've gone too far. Uh, then what does he pick? Livelihood. Has anyone done this before? If I just have the right job, you see this with idealistic yoga teachers, like, I'm just going to teach yoga, I'm not going to ask for any money. And then it's like, can't train, can't get a massage, can't eat well, can't see their friends because they're working so hard, totally broke because they're so idealistic. So what does it mean to have right livelihood? It means to have an appropriate livelihood, but to watch where it becomes.